Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. In this episode of Joanna and the Maestro, Stevie, I want to talk to you about Puccini. I want you to tell me about Puccini because I've always loved him as a composer of operas. And I find that when people say to me, oh, opera, I don't know anything about it. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't understand it. I always say, go to a Puccini opera because the stories seem to be terribly clearly told. The music seems to be, ghastly word, accessible. They've mostly, all of them, got tunes which have become world famous, quite separately from the opera. And he's just sort of gorgeous. Is Puccini a big man in your life? Goodness, yes. Absolutely. Huge. I adore his operas. I adore his music. I adore his sense of drama. There is a quality that he has that quite rightly has resulted in at least two, maybe even three of his operas being in the top ten most performed ever. Which would you say those were? Well, La Boheme yeah. um, and Tosca yeah. and Madame Butterfly. Yes. These are never, ever out of uh, repertoire. There's countless productions all the time. They've never gone out of fashion. And on a sort of surface level, they seem very powerful emotionally, but underneath it all, there is a huge amount of subtlety and character delineation. He chose his plots very, very carefully, and if you look at them, they're all radically different. So as far as Puccini is concerned, he never really copied himself. So when you talk about his operas, they're all very different and all entirely engaging. He, he of course, inherited the, the crown, really, for a style called Verismo. So one example might be Vesti la Giubba. It's from Leon Cavallo's opera I Pagliacci, one of the two operas known as Cav and Pag. Leon Cavallo and Mascagni were both masters of the genre called Verismo. One should never take these titles too seriously, but Verismo was a growth of opera and its music, which at a more immediate level engaged with the specific emotional content of what the characters were saying. So when Mimi announces herself in La Boheme, in La Boheme 
and tells her story about herself, immediately you are drawn in with enormous sympathy in a way that if you read the words, you would not be quite so moved. So in Mimi's aria, Mi Chiamano Mimi, we hear those soft and plaintive strings responding to the ultimately doomed character Mimi, who, this is a spoiler alert, perishes at the end of the opera from consumption. wrong to say that um, La Boheme is strangely modern. It seems seems full of everyday observations. The artist's downstairs, when she comes downstairs and knocks at the door and says, it's terribly cold and I haven't got a candle, I haven't got any light. And I think it's Rodolfo, isn't it, who's downstairs. And he says, gosh, your little hand, your tiny hand is frozen and things like this. And they sing, they fall in love. It's a very sort of human thing, very naturalistic kind of setting, rather than, let's say, the story of the ring which Wagner wrote, which is about heroes and gods and demigods and Valkyries yes. and flying people. So it's it's much more sort of human level, almost street level. That's not the same in all of his operas, because of course in Madame Butterfly. Well, no, Madame Butterfly is very much the same tragic story. Tell me that story. Well, Madame Butterfly caused quite a scandal. And the story, very simply, is that the Americans were dominating Japan at the time. The American Navy and Army was all over Japan around the end of the 19th century. And it's a historical fact that many American servicemen in those days took for themselves a Japanese girlfriend and went through artificial wedding ceremonies. You see, immediately, this is a story that that you can't help feel is close to the bone. Mm. And emotions will be deep. And so Pinkerton falls in love with Madame Butterfly, his name for her. And she falls hopelessly in love with him. Has his child. And they go through a ceremony. What compounds the issue, Sharpless, the American consul in Nagasaki, then accompanies Pinkerton and is constantly warning him of the danger of going too deeply into this because he can tell that Madame Butterfly is falling for it hook, line and sinker, much more deeply involved. For Pinkerton, it's an adventure. And the other issue is that in the original version, the text included depictions of Japanese society that are pretty prejudicial. But of course, on the other side of the coin, Puccini's point was that the Japanese families were known to push their daughters into these relationships 
in the hope of getting money and some sort of status. But there's no question at all that Pinkerton is not going to take Butterfly back to America. And in due course, his ship departs and he's gone. Butterfly, in the meantime, believes absolutely that he will return. Sharpless, the consul, tries to tell her that she shouldn't be so hopeful, but she refuses to give in. And so her family desert her, everybody deserts her, except for Suzuki, her sort of servant girl. And eventually, to cut a long story short, when Pinkerton comes back, he feels very remorseful, and he runs up to the hill, but he's brought his American wife with him. He runs ahead of her, and Madame Butterfly introduces him to his son. She cannot believe that he hasn't come back to stay. But in fact, what they've done is to come back. The consul told him in America that Butterfly had a son. They've come back specifically to take the child with them. Back to America, away from her. To provide a better life. And, of course, they leave and Butterfly commits suicide. But the point is, it was so close to the bone, this story, and prejudicial to quite a degree, that Puccini was forced to rewrite it. And so took out quite a lot of the scenes where the Japanese appeared in a less than favourable light. It also, of course didn't reflect very well on the Americans. But my point is that Puccini invests the human story with so much pathos and understanding. So Pinkerton is drawn up as a romantic, headstrong, optimistic young man and shows him at the very end of the opera absolutely brokenhearted at the result of everything that's happened. I can remember at the end, we have all that tumultuous brass and Pinkerton just basically yelling, butterfly, repeatedly. He's absolutely distraught. one of the loveliest and most appalling because we sort of know that he probably won't come back because everybody's saying to Butterfly, don't hold hold out too much hope that this is all going to end well, even Suzuki saying it. And she she sings Unbeldi, she says, she describes how it will be. One fine day. Yes, one fine day he will come and the cannon will fire to show the boat is coming into the harbour. One fine day. Every time I can hear the music which is bringing us towards Unbeldi and little optimistic Madame Butterfly singing it, I just start crying. I sit in the audience and I start crying. I know, and it's here we really feel that um, Butterfly is such a pure soul and this aria conveys all her fragility and um, optimism.
And then she goes to sleep. Yes, the humming song. Well, now here's the magic. This is where Puccini really gets under the skin, and I don't think people need to analyse it as much as conductors and producers and singers do, because the famous humming song ostensibly appears to be people around Butterfly being sympathetic and saying, sleep well, the heavens will smile on you. But in fact... This is Puccini delving deep into the audience's sympathy. The people who are watching this, on the one hand, feel emotionally drawn in. Immediately the humming chorus finishes, he breaks into another piece of music that completely shatters one's sensibilities because it's so brutal and it uses the same theme. If you remember, the humming chorus begins... Bum, bum, beam, bum, bum, bum. And that goes all the way through with the humming song tune on top. This next piece of music starts... Pam, pam, beam, crash. And you, you're thrown into a piece of music that I can only describe as horrific because it's so painful. And then Puccini is fundamentally saying, so you were all feeling very lovey-dovey about Madame Butterfly, and you all love her? Well, look what's happened to her. And everybody was standing around and nobody could stop this, this drama happening. This, for me, is a genius in Verismo, in that it hits you hard with a very emotional music, but underneath there is a very objective moral story of how you really should be feeling if you are able to see the whole perspective of it. Joanna here. Maestro Stephen Barlow and I want to hear from you, our wonderful listeners. Send us your classical music questions, queries and concerns through to hello at joannaandthemaestro.com and we'll get back to you on the programme. Thank you so much. Tell me dates of people. Tell me who is before... Who were the great opera composers, kind of? Well, obviously, Mozart was there, but, but before Puccini came well, who? Well, the big beasts were Verdi and Wagner, both born in the same year, 1813. Wow. And between them, they really commanded the two obvious styles, the Italian style and the German style. Those are the two German dominant school, styles. Italian school, yeah. yes. Verdi, of course, emerged after Rossini and Donizetti. He would have known all their works. Verdi was still very much alive when Puccini was born. What did he think of him? This I don't know, but you can see correlations in both composers' work, particularly Verdi's last operas, Otello and Falstaff, written when Verdi was a very old man, when he is breaking out of the old formal structures of aria, coda, chorus. He was breaking all of that. So Otello and Falstaff are... Uh, without those structures. He's already thinking 
in a more naturalistic way. What do you think drew Puccini? Because he's done two huge operas about the Far East, Madame Butterfly, and also Turandot, who is the princess of China. Yes. <coughs> which is a kind of love and death story as well. But in this case, it isn't the principals who die, it is the little servant girl, Liu. There's such a tragic story involved in this that Puccini had a servant girl and Puccini's wife accused her of sleeping with Puccini and getting pregnant by him, which was completely a falsehood, but she accused it was false accusation. The little girl was so, so appalled by this that she killed herself. And Puccini never got over it. And his last opera, I believe was Turandot, wasn't it? Yes, that's right, written much later. In the, and he in didn't even finish it. In 1924 or six, um, and I don't think it was premiered until Puccini had died. And he, he, didn't, didn't, he, finish he it. didn't finish it. He didn't finish it, and he stopped at the point at which Liu died. The servant girl in his opera. Yes, that's right. You have to say, I mean, Turandot is, is a vast exotic tale. Everybody was interested in the Far East. It seemed exotic in the same way that Bizet and French composers were, in, were always fascinated by flamenco and Spain. So the story is a fairy tale in a way. It's slightly mythological. Mm. But one character comes through, uh, throwing up genuinely modern social issues in that she's a faithful servant girl, much loved by, by Timur. Timur. The old man. The father. Caliph, the, the wandering prince's, exiled prince's father, the old blind That's man. It. That's it. And, and uh, um, she is in love with Caliph, and she gives her life finally. By the great, all-powerful and deadly creature, Turandot, incredibly beautiful, who's having people executed almost the, as soon as we start the opera. The, the crowd, the great crowds of of Peking are ganging together, crowding, waiting for the moon to rise, which is when the executions take place, and the young prince of Persia is put to death because he's come to put, put, try his hand for Turandot. He has to answer three riddles. And, of course, Caliph is completely smitten. And little Liu, little Liu, the servant girl to his father, who's just tagging along humbly, humbly, looking has the after most... Him. Looking She's after him. Loyal. Begging him. She says, Signora Escolt, please, sir, listen to me, listen to me. Don't, don't do this. And it's the most touching, beautiful piece. But what's clear, really, is that Puccini wanted to write, wanted to somehow create an opera in which Calaf and Turandot would seem like the hero and the heroine. But I'm not the only one who feels that even if he had lived long enough, he would still have been wrestling with how to make Liu seem a lesser character than Turandot and Calaf. So the version I've done twice, we've used a version which uses quite a lot of Puccini's music and is very successful. It's hugely grand and glorious. But the opera ends with everybody celebrating the, the, the triumph of love. But your sympathy has never really been with these two-dimensional characters. It's Liu Calif, you love, it's Liu. It's Liu that you, that you really love. 
It's, it's so extraordinary because <laughs> of that of that fantastic opera, which I think is just gorgeous, and Turandot singing in Questa Regia and Ping Pong and Pang singing about their homeland, and their, and it's quite a lot of sort of Chinesey type music, isn't it? What do I mean? Is it that kind of like the black notes on the piano kind of thing? That's a bit simplistic. Yes, the pentatonic scale. Bam, bam, beam, bam, bam. Yeah. Yes, he uses various stylistic things that suggest, just as Bizet did with Carmen, and just as Ravel does in in Scheherazade. So a lot of composers have adopted little telltale symbols or hooks, if you like, to give music a, a frame of where the story is set. But underneath it all, you, you once again, it's a composer at the end of his career doing things that really look forward to what was going to happen in music next. So the, the, the orchestration is, it could be one of those enormous epic film scores. In Turandot, the entrance of the emperor, it just sums it up perfectly. Oh, I love that piece of music. Stevie, do you think this is the father of film music? These... I don't doubt it at all. Yeah. Along with Richard Strauss, it's absolutely clear that inspiration for the famous composers who made Hollywood music scores great all got their inspiration. Who are they? From... Well, we're going to talk about that in another podcast. You, say, well, just, you can just say their names. You can just tell me their names. Is Korngold one of them? Korngold, Max Steiner, uh-huh. uh, Miklos Roja. Yeah. And these are at the giant, the so huge scope films, aren't they? Vasty, vast films, weren't they? Yes. But we want to talk a bit about Tosca too. Tell me about Tosca, because Tosca is one of the great giants and people... It gives such a, an opening for the, you know, the divas, all the divas of the world have sung Tosca. And Cavaradossi, her lover, gets to sing that fabulous Elucci van le Stelle. I mean, Puccini just grabs grabs your heart with particular bits of music, yes. which is then played, played, played. I mean, people don't know why it's sung or who it is, but these vast songs or vast tunes or bits that grab your heart, real tearjerkers, these are quite emotional pieces of music, aren't they? Do you think one of the reasons that Puccini is so much loved and so famous is that he does exactly what opera requires, which is love and death? He doesn't go into a fun, like... Mozart with Marriage of Figaro. He doesn't do Rossini with the Silken Ladder or anything like this. He doesn't go into lighter stuff. He doesn't seem to do lighter anything, does he? Yeah, well, he, well, he did. He, he wrote um, La Rondine, which is the most beautiful um, light operetta, almost, yeah. after, you know, the Lehar style. But I think the really impressive thing is that with opera, it is the music that speaks. So it cannot be an overcomplicated plot. It can't be two people sitting around a table talking like we are. Music goes 
under the surface and shows you more about the characters, their dilemmas, indecision, then their decision, their sudden impulses. There is an enormous commentary about real people. It's something Richard Strauss also did very tellingly in that this was opera about people that were not perfect, but they were in the main good loving, generous, hopeful, and sometimes put into impossible situations. Somebody quite snobbish said to me, do you like do you like music? I said, I love it. Do you ever go to opera? And I said, I do. And he said, I bet you go to Puccini, which was supposed to be a put-down. <laughs> Is it because it's easy-peasy to go in and love a Puccini opera, whereas you might flounder a bit with some of the... With what? I don't know. What, what am I saying? I mean, you get to... If you get to love opera... You love everything, but I, I, it's very easy to follow a good a good Puccini story, isn't I it? I think Puccini has, to, to a certain extent, become very popular because a lot of the music is very attractive and um, it sells itself. But don't let's forget that when Tosca first came out, famously a critic called it a shabby little shocker. Oh. And that was because it, of its brutality, but also its truthfulness about showing real life. So when people might suggest, oh, I bet you love Puccini, and they, and they think, oh, we must go to Bohème, it's such fun. I mean, look, be honest, you, you were sitting in, in the opera house in Vancouver yeah. when I did Tosca there with Suzanne Murphy, who was one of the greatest she singing actresses. And at the end, when you're sitting there and your heart stops and she's committed suicide. The person sitting next to you yes. stood up and said, and said, that was fun, where should we eat? Um, and it was very odd. And, and, and the idea, oh, well, let's take, uh, let's take our young children to go and see La Boheme. Well, but don't tell them the story then. The music's lovely, but it is in no way fun. Well, Maestro, I think we've just had such a happy talk about Puccini, and I'm now going to ask you just one quite simple question. Could you choose the piece that people might like to listen to as they drive the short distance from home to the supermarket? And I think I'd like that piece to be something that I would love as well. Well, I don't have any trouble in knowing what that is. But I agree, as long as your car is fairly soundproof. It's soundproof. Because it's Signore Ascolta, sung by Liu from Turandot. And if that isn't the most ethereally sublime piece of dramatic music and text, I don't know what is. Thank you for listening to this episode about Puccini and see you next week. In this episode, you've heard the following music. Versi la Giuba by Ruggero Leoncavallo, performed by Enrico Caruso, and the record company was Marathon Media International Limited. Puccini's La Boheme, Se mi chiamano Mimi, performed by Maria Callas and the orchestra and chorus La Scala, Milan, and the record company was Cato. Puccini's La Boheme, Che Gelida Manina, performed by Carlo Bergonzi, Orchestra dell'Accademia Nazionale di Santa Cecilia, and conducted by Tullio Serafin, and the record company was Decca Music Group Limited.
Puccini's Madama Butterfly, Act One, Bugliatemi Bene, performed by Rome Opera Orchestra and Chorus and conducted by Eric Leinsdorf, and the record company was Smith & Co. Puccini's Madama Butterfly, Act Two, Con Honor Muore, performed by the Orchestra e Coro dell'Accademia di Santa Cecilia, Roma, Renata Tebaldi, Carlo Bergonzi, and Tullio Serafin, and the record company was digitalgramophone.com. Puccini's Madame Butterfly, Act Two, Un Bel D, performed by Andrea Bocelli, Carla Maria Itzo, Mariella Guarnera, Marzio Giossi, Antonio De Angelis, Antonio Tacini, Coro de Festival Puccini, Bruno Nicoli, Orchestra Cita Lirica, and Alberto Veronesi. And the record company was Fondazione Festival Pucciniano, Torre del Lago Puccini. Puccini's Madame Butterfly, Humming Chorus, performed by Rome Opera Chorus and Rome Opera Orchestra and conducted by Eric Leinsdorf. And the record company was BMG Entertainment. Puccini's Madame Butterfly, Act Two, The Introduction, performed by Coro del Teatro dell'Opera di Roma, Orchestra of the Rome Opera House, Gianni Lazzari and Sir John Barbiroli. And the record company was EMI Records Limited. Signore Ascolta, from Madame Butterfly by Puccini, performed by Montserrat Caballé, the London Philharmonic Orchestra, and conducted by Zubin Mehta. Published by Casa di Cordi and G. Ricordi and Co. Limited, and the record company was Decca Music Group Limited. Puccini's Tosca, e Lucevan la Stelle, performed by Jussi Björling, with the orchestra of the Rome Opera, and conducted by Eric Leinsdorf, and the record company was Musical Concepts. Signore Ascolta, from Madame Butterfly by Puccini, performed by Montserrat Caballé, with the London Philharmonic Orchestra, and conducted by Zubin Mehta, published by Casa Ricordi and G. Ricordi and Co. Limited, and the record company was Decca Music Group Limited. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate K165, performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner. Licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited. <laughs>